You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor Institute Ireland Conference. The seventh annual Tudor Institute Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2017. The conference was generously supported by the College of Arts, Social Sciences and Celtic Studies at NUI Galway, the School of Humanities at NUI Galway, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Disciplines of History and English at NUI Galway, the Women's History Association of Ireland and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Alan Kelly from Trinity College Dublin. His paper was entitled the Tudor Columba of Manus O'Donnell, circa 1532. So this paper, um, I uh, propose to look at Manus O'Donnell and his life of Colin Kill is um, Beha, circa 1532. And instead of looking at the, the text itself, um, I uh, wish to look at certain aspects of the, the text, placing it in, its, in a, a broader context of reform and uh, policy. Um, in the Lordship and beyond at this at this time, and but mo- uh, most of all, I wish to hone in on a particular illustration that attracted me to the text in the first place through my studies, which don't focus on the O'Donnell Lordship or Manus O'Donnell, um, but rather uh, looking at Kildare and Ormond and uh, other aspects of reform in early Tudor Ireland. So this is very much an aside of my usual studies which makes me all the more conscious that everybody in this room who knows more than me anyways in general uh, will infinitely know more about the O'Donnells and Manus O'Donnell, which makes it doubly daunting, but um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. So Manus O'Donnell, um, son of Hugh Duff and heir apparent to the O'Donnell chieftaincy, produced a life of Columba, uh, the Baham, Beha Columkill, circa 1532, a hagiography of considerable cultural and political significance. Its political import and wider cultural appeal are most directly represented by an illustrated frontispiece referred to here as the Tudor Columba. And I really perhaps should have entitled the paper uh, Tudor Columba of, of uh, Manus O'Donnell with a question mark because uh, it seems a bit presumptuous. Art. But... Um, so this uh, is uh, the illustration that attracted me to the text. And uh, I haven't, I can't claim to have uh, studied it in its original, but there is a copy of this in Gilbert's facsimiles of the National Manuscripts of Ireland. And the, uh, this image here is taken from that particular text. The Behes survives in two manuscripts, one of which is stored in the Bodleian Library, Rawlinson B. 514, and also in the Franciscan Convent Archive, A8. The Rawlinson text features this illustration. This image noticeably, notably includes two Tudor roses, or what appear to be two Tudor roses, each side of the saint, in an illustration containing both Celtic and English influences. The distinctive symbolic details here 
along with certain scholarly aspects of the written text of the life of Colin Kill, mark the Behe as a highly politicised work. So this begs two salient questions from, from my perspective. Why would Manus produce such a manuscript? And also, who amongst his allies were perhaps best placed to facilitate, facilitate O'Donnell policies? At this time, the most powerful O'Donnell ally, Garrett O. Fitzgerald, Earl of Kildare, was working with the O'Donnell toward agreement with the Crown and peace with their neighbours in Ulster, the O'Neill. The Beha, with its Tudor Columba, represented a convergence of both Kildare and O'Donnell methods in transmitting political ideals through a, a cultural or ecclesiastical medium. The fact that the 1520s and the 1530s witnessed a concerted Kildare investment in cultural pursuit is, uh, I, I would like to suggest, not uh, a coincidence. Geraldine Ventures at this time included the establishment of a collegiate church in Manute, the cataloguing of the Earl's Library, fostering relations with figures of the Italian Renaissance, through their cousins in, in, in Florence, the Gerardini of Florence, investing of portrait in portraiture, for, um, the Hans Holbein portrait of, of Gardo Fitzgerald, and uh, courtly literature, court poetry, uh, for instance, a fair Geraldine by Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey. In 1531, the O'Donnell appealed to, Kild uh, to Kildare for crown protection, and around the time that Garrett O came to their aid against O'Neill, Kildare influence in Ulster was already well established, partly through marriage into the O'Neill sept. A continued alliance with the O'Donnells strengthened since 1504, where the Annals of the Four Masters recount them as first among Kildare supporters at Nocto. Although the Beha dates to 1532, evidence suggests that the project may have been in production since uh, the late 1520s. At the opening of the text, Manist writes that he, quote, laboured on his writings for many years. In the 1520s, Hugh Duff O'Donnell was invited by, in, by Kildare um, to Dublin as one of the principal men in Ireland. And so in 1531, shortly before the production of the Beha, a hugely significant document was issued, the submission of the O'Donnell to the then Lord Deputy Skeffington. Uh, the agreement recorded in Latin um, in manuscript in, in the Lambeth Palace Library. Um, it's, it's included amongst the state papers of Henry VIII. Um, this was reached in a timely fashion, this agreement, shortly before the Beha was completed, partly due to a damaging war with O'Neill. O'Donnell perhaps saw a need to seek terms with the English administration and the 1531 Articles of Submission, which were... Um, recorded, or at least agreed to, in Drogheda, um, of which I have extracts in this slide here, which I, I can only assume that uh, can be barely made out, never mind the text. Um, but these articles of submission are, are perhaps most engaging when read with the better in mind. 
The terms speak at length of the king's desire for political reform and regional stability. Beginning by emphasising the primacy of harmony and order, it similarly concludes, quote, concludes over the handling of peace and concord and the application of these items to lead an ensuing tranquility in honour of the king for prelates and abbots of the church through free will and without objection to support the king's wishes to reform Ireland to his abilities and comfort of his country, this is O'Donnell, as much as any other Irish in all the land. The long-standing feud with O'Neill had quite a bearing here. Kildare was a bridge between O'Donnell and O'Neill, the enmity between whom represented a major stumbling block to reform, peace and crown influence in Ulster. The church was an important player in these proceedings. O'Donnell used the church in Raffle and Derry for political purposes, and this surely also applied to some extent to cultural endeavours. The 1531 Terms of Submission, and also a 1539, uh, later 1539 agreement with the O'Connor Don of Connacht, were in part negotiated by the abbot of Derry, while the secular arm of this abbey, which was founded by Columba, was widely acknowledged. Later correspondence between Manus and James V of Scotland highlighted the diplomatic roles played by the clerics of O'Donnell's country, quote, and in 1536, the Scottish king even wrote to Pope Paul III in favour of a dean of Derry claiming the See of Raffle. And I have behind me some um, brief snippets from these sources, essentially highlighting the, um, the roles played by the, the clergy of the O'Donnell Lordship, specifically the Abbey of Derry. With the Beha, we can observe perhaps the, the spiritual trust in Major O'Donnell cultural productions. However, by virtue of the Tudor Columba, the illustration, we see an affirmation, perhaps, of ecclesiastical involvement in expression of policies that extend beyond the mere writing of a hagiography. Briefly placing the Beha in the context of contemporary hagiographies, there was an interest in such scholarship in West Ulster during the early 16th century. For comparative purposes, very briefly, the Book of Fina, 1516, A Life of St. Colleen by um, Marcus O'Mailconera, is most relevant. The book was commissioned by Ty Goruddy, hereditary co-arb of Fina, under the protection of the O'Rourke of Brefna. Manus O'Donnell took an interest in this text and copied parts of the manuscript, including those of relevance to Columba. Raymond Gillespie points out that a passage from the life of St. Colleen, where Columba bestowed Fina and its land to St. Colleen, vanishes from the Beha. This particular snippet of information is, is absent from the Beha Conkill. O'Donnell influence in South Ulster and beyond, perhaps echo in the Beha, as the ambitions of the Brefnan lords shaped the Book of Fina. Raymond Gillespie emphasises that the life of St. Colleen 
was very much an invention for political ends. And I suggest that we observe something similar unfolding here. The close details of the text itself, which I, I won't uh, uh, delve into the miracles and the prophecies of, of Columba, but certain aspects I would like to bend in the light of what I'm discussing here. The close details of the text itself and the illustration um, highlight a bridge between the genre of hagiography and a broader political project. The illustrated Tudor Columba was itself expensively produced. Um, blue ink was rare, but rather generously used here. And um, the pigment holds its colour quite well. It appears to be um, lapis lazuli, an exotic material, um, which I... <laughs> uh, knew absolutely nothing about until I tried to do a little bit of research in. But um, it's exotic and, ex and an expensive um, ingredient, so to speak. The figure of Columba is, is granting benediction. He holds a Celtic crozier that blends with the surroundings. The crook itself features a Celtic decoration, which is um, almost disguised against a blue background. Just have to use your imaginations for a moment here. <laughs> and this matches the saints' vestments. These liturgical garments befit a prelate true to the Latin rite, an image at odds with the early Christian Irish Church of Columba, and even the Gaelic Church of Manus's day. By far the most important details are the Tudor insignia, either side of the saint. These overtly placed emblems are reminiscent of the decorative art produced in considerable quantity during the reign of Henry VIII and his father Henry VII as the Tudor dynasty asserted its claim to the crown. Um, a rather shaky claim, as, as, it, as it turns out. So there is a real element of propaganda at play here, I would suggest. With the church's conduit, Tudor symbol and dynastic iconography are used here to strike new ground for all parties concerned. The border decorations in the illustration are um, Anglican as opposed to native in style. In purely aesthetic terms, the image absorbs an earlier heritage. For instance, um, the 14th century book shrine of the Cahoc of Columba which some of you may be familiar with. Um, this was a ceremonial artefact which, which held a 6th century um, insular uh, psalter of Columba, and it featured an image of Columba, not unlike what we see in the Beha Column Kill, but devoid of anything even remotely uh, resembling uh, Tudor uh, roses. And uh, I, I would suggest that there is an element of courtly um, art that's influencing uh, the production of this text here, not merely by the Tudor roses themselves but, and the, or the Anglican styles. Uh, and a, a one fragment of evidence that I would perhaps share with, 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 my, with, with you here is uh, the uh, Garrett Og Fitzgerald portrait attributed to Hans Holbein of 1530, 
Now, this dates just to just before the um, production of the Beha. And without going too far out on a limb, well, it seems to be unusual the way that um, this portrait of Garbo Fitzgerald, it includes heraldic iconography on, on the top left and top right-hand side, um, to the left and right of the figure himself, perhaps not unlike, or not entirely unlike, the manner in which Columba is portrayed in the Tudor Columba. Um, and I, I note this very tentatively indeed, as rather an aside, but, but a, a curious thought perhaps, in trying to uncover the English influences here in this illustration. So as a whole, the image harks to um, uh, an O'Donnell dialogue with the crown and perhaps O'Donnell Gerald, an O'Donnell-Geraldine alliance leading toward dialogue with the crown. Briefly looking at the written text, the biographical material was written, quote, in simple Irish, so to be understood by all, end quote, from Manus mentions this himself. So this takes in both Gaelic and Anglo-Irish audiences. While perhaps its ceremonial value for English-speaking officials or figures came by virtue of the Tudor Columba, the illustration. It is also necessary to bear in mind that Hugh Duff O'Donnell, father of Manus, was knighted on a visit to court in 1513. There is one particularly noteworthy characteristic to the written text in parts of books one and three, as it seems to deviate from traditional hagiographies. Now, I'm not an expert in this particular field, but this is something I found of interest that may be relevant to the, the broader context here, um, and especially the broader rhetorical context of the production of the Baha'i Column Carey. Before any reference to scripture, or even the saint himself, Manus refers to the early church patricians, and it is through Gregory and Augustine that the reader first encounters Columba. Gregory's duties of a priest and the confessions of Augustine are cited by means of introduction. The church fathers were um, central to uh, political and religious thought, and especially the manner in which political and religious thought intersect in the early Tudor era. Gregory's, the pastor of Ballas, overtly appears in state memoranda to Woolsey with the 1515 State of Ireland and plan for its reformation, a well-studied and influential document. So to a certain extent, we see an appetite for political expression through ecclesiastical channels. And this is interesting when looking at the, the Beha, Column Kill, and the illustrated page in the manuscript here. In transcending the gap between Brehan custom and the king's writ, canon law could be used as a proxy for common law. James Murray has convincingly argued how Archbishop of Dublin, John Allen, at this very time, similarly um, operated in this manner in the early 1530s. Crown dialogue with native lords could secure loyalty partly through the universal church as a common denominator. This was most readily achieved through the pre-existing island-wide Geraldine network led by Garrett Oak Fitzgerald. Stephen Ellis, um, in Tudor Frontiers, um, commendably treats uh, at length of the Geraldine arrangements 
for cost-effective governance in Ireland. So this, this fits very much with a picture that, that, that appears to unfold here. Compromise with native lords such as the O'Donnell dovetailed neatly with um, a Kildare-led administration, especially if the Irish church could offer some measure of unity or, or common ground. In other words, we're all good Christians here, the O'Donnell or the O'Neill and Garrett Oak Fitzgerald himself. This was an image that could perhaps be put towards um, uh, a government at court. As Manus had uh, laboured, to use his words, for many years on the Beha, so too the O'Donnell had long cultivated relations with Kildare, forging an alliance with the leading Anglo-Irish magnate. Such a project would not be rashly abandoned. And of course, by 1529, the political and religious landscape had changed at court with the fall of Wolsey and the break with Rome. But even in 1532, a complete and irreversible, irreversible crown severance of papal ties was uh, unlikely. O'Donnell and Kildare may have been of the view that reform in Ulster, with policy in part expressed through the church, would perhaps survive this crisis and ultimately bear fruition. Wolsey's death, Cromwell's rise and the eventual fallout over the king's divorce were as disastrous as they were unforeseen. The cardinal's undoing dealt a near-fatal but not a terminal blow to O'Donnell overtures with the crown as conveyed along ecclesiastical lines. But such a strike came with the 1534 revolt of Silken Thomas, an ultimate destruction of Kildare power. As a key figure in the Geraldine League, a loose confederation of pro-Kildare Irish nobles after this event, Manus O'Donnell perhaps demonstrates that he had leaned closer to his Anglo-Irish ally than to the crown. In this sense, the Tudor Columba, as a symbol, can be deceptive. It may appeal to the crown, but in reality, the O'Donnell was paying lip service to courtly senses. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 180 podcasts, from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.